0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. If you have um, been around the church for any degree of time, you know, the one of the things that I'll emphasize a lot of times is history. Uh, there's a reason for that. One is that we as Christians, as believers, um, our belief is rooted in an historical fact, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so history is a part of that. The other thing is if if you don't know where you've been, you really can't figure out where you're going or oftentimes even where you are currently, and especially as things change and move, it gives us context and perspective. So as we begin this examination of this song, let me begin by going to a little snippet of history. Um, At the beginning of World War II, Germany was rolling over everybody. They'd finally invaded France, Britain came to the aid of its ally, put over 300,000 men and the cream of its military might into France. They weren't ready at all though for what happened and the the Germans just, the Nazis were just crushing them. Um, Very shortly France was going to fall and anybody left on the continent was going to go into captivity. So as they retreated to the shore and to uh, the English Channel which separates France and England, over 300,000 British soldiers were trapped. Um, As they were trapped in a situation that was probably one of the most desperate that they had encountered up to that time and they were facing annihilation or to surrender, um, eventually something miraculous happened. There was an outpouring from uh, England and military ships, uh, people that had pleasure craft, Uh, um, practically everything but rowboats, I think, came across the English Channel, and in an incredible miracle of military might, they removed and managed to evacuate almost the entire expeditionary force safely. It was a miraculous event that, honestly, at that time, nobody, especially those on the beach, expected would take place. Before that occurred, and as they were facing the hopelessness of their circumstance, but also the determination of their position and how they were going to handle it, one of the officers in charge on the beach sent a three-word message back to the command in England. It was only three words. The three words were, but if not. That was the entirety of the message. England at that time was extremely biblically literate in a way that we are not today. In other words, they understood their Bible, and many of them had that in their classes. They understood the Scripture, and they immediately knew what that three-word phrase was referencing. What it was conveying was a message of courage, determination, and ultimate hope in the midst of trouble. The message conveyed that the British on the beach were going to stand defiantly against the Nazis. They would do it right to the end, believing that God would provide but even if he did not, that they were not going to surrender or quit. How did the command back there know it? Well, again, it was a biblical term. We find the term in Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, oh, Israelite kids who've been taken away from their homeland and they're facing in Babylon. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this huge golden idol and the music to play and everyone's to bow down, but they alone won't bow down. And it's noticed because thousands of others do bow down. Good imagery for our time today, incidentally, of people bowing down and those who refuse to bow down. He threatens them with uh, um, uh, incineration in a furnace. And their response is this. They said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. But if not, instantly recognized due to the biblical literacy of that time. That was then. (laughs) This is now. Matthew six nine says, "Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name." Hallowed be thy name. Well, these are three of allegedly the most informed people. (laughs) Of our time and they could not come up with the phrase there was a Jewish commentator political commentator who says I'm Jewish and I know what that is the biblical literacy of our time this is drawn from Matthew 6 5 through 13 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says our Father who art in heaven Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, here's a good question, Mark. How many of you were raised by saying, forgive us our debtors? Okay. The rest of you, I'm assuming, either were raised with the term trespasses and trespassers, or you just have no clue what we're discussing right now. <laughs> okay. For our purposes today, we'll use the term trespasses and trespassers. But the point is, is here is a, 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 a prayer, a phrase, a phrase. One of the very not even, not even like the but if you know not, and we don't understand it today. There are things you're being told all the time that there are Christian positions. Young people, you're being put told all the time. This is positions Christians hold because it's who's screaming and yelling loudest, or people are attacking us and saying this is what we hold, and you have no clue whether they're speaking the truth or not. It's only if you understand the Scripture and read it that you have an understanding whether what you're being accused of is true or not, or what's being said is accurate or not. Now, we have to go to this word hallowed. Because we look at that, and some of us are convinced it has something to do with Halloween. And indirectly, you could argue that. We're not going to get into the discussion of the roots of all that. But hallowed, um, throw the definition up here on this, is to treat or or to render a treat as holy. It's basically the term that means holy. It's reverence, sacredness, holiness. It means to be set apart or blameless. Holiness or whole is is even the word whole, even though it's not from that, W-H-O-L-E, means wholeness or completeness. It means like outstanding health to be set apart, to be unique, to be alien, to be so whole, so complete, so, so total in, in integrity and completeness that it's set apart from everything else that exists. The writer of the song that we are discussing today is Reginald Heber. Reginald Heber was a Church of England pastor back in the Victorian age, back in the 1800s or so. Uh, Born in 1783, I think died 1826. He was a pastor in England, and then he was a bishop in Calcutta, um, with Calcutta in Australia and Ceylon, I think at that time, as it was called. Um, He eventually died there, while on mission when he was only in his 40s or so. He was a poet of renowned character. He went to Oxford and won a prize there, actually, for his poetry. And uh, one of the poems, one of the things he wrote um, is this song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And so let's take a peek at what this is. Let's take a look at the lyrics as we come to play here. First of all, the song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Well, let's back this up a little bit first. Um, This song is very Trinitarian. It's not just because of the three words holy, but you'll see as we go along, it has a lot of of teaching and emphasis upon the nature of God, the character of God. Some of the songs we sing today are more about us than they are about God. You know, our need for forgiveness, how how he loves us. I mean, there's one song we sang years back about about greeting us with a wet, sloppy kiss. I mean, that was a little bizarre. Um, But it's gotten very romanticized. This is talking about God and his character. This is why we're praising It's drawn directly out of Scripture. I could offer to you, and I will not this morning, but I could offer to you literally 50 to 60 Scriptures that are referenced in this um, song alone. It's drawn predominantly from the book of Revelation with a little echo in Isaiah. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In our parlance today, when we want to emphasize something in English, we put an exclamation point, okay? Um, We're going to go to the picnic, exclamation point. Um, You know, this person was awesome, exclamation point. Jewish literature didn't have uh, um, exclamation points. What they did is they used repetition, And so, when you see in Scripture, or even Jesus saying, truly, truly, it's not just saying this is what it is, it's saying, really pay attention to this. When it says it three times, that was to the maximal effect. So, verily, 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 I say unto you, or truly, 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 or holy, holy, holy. We're not just saying it's holy, we're not just emphasizing that it's holy, we're practically screaming that it's holy. And so, you have to understand, when it's written in Scripture here, holy, holy, it's ramping up, holy, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, throughout Revelation, we see, and we'll take a few of the lyrics here and break it down as we go by. The book of Revelation was written by a guy named John. He was the last of Jesus' apostles. He was, I think, the only one that didn't die by torture or or by uh, martyrdom. But he was isolated. He was sent to an island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos, And we talked about what exile means, to be separated from your friends and family and from civilization. And so he was in exile. In the latter years of his life, he has a revelation from God, hence the name of the book. And so he's the writer of the book of Revelations. And God takes him up into heaven, and he sees heaven. He has an experience of seeing God and seeing the future and all that's part of that. And that's what this is coming into play with. So, let's take a look. Revelations chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, says this, After this I looked, John speaking, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And so now he's getting access. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. All of Revelations is intense. Nobody whispers. They're all shouting like trumpets or all the rest of this. And the voice I first heard speaking like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Now, once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, So get the imagery of this. This is powerful in imagery. There's this throne in heaven, and there's someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. These are precious stones, so there's something of light reflecting through that's that's giving off light. It's it's gorgeous. It's blinding. It's beautiful. Um, A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And so there's this beautiful riot of colors and light. Surrounding the throne were 24 Other thrones, littler thrones, seated on them were 24 elders. It doesn't mean that they were old people. It means that they were leaders. They were people of renown. They were people of authority of some type. And they were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They're the seven spirits of God. So you've got this powerful imagery of, of, of God on his throne blindingly beautiful with colors and riot of of, of of sensations with the rumblings and flashes and lightning. And then these other elders are gathered around and, and these other authorities, and they have their own crowns, their own thrones, but it's all centered around, around here with, with uh, um, uh, God. These crowns are gold. And then it says in verse 6, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So there's this beautiful... You know, no no wind blowing. It's just flat like glass setting out there, and the water's crystal clear, and it's just beautiful. The setting. Well, let me let me let me catch you through the next one. Revelations chapter four verses nine through eleven. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him, because there's four creatures that jump in here too. The twenty-four elders fall down before Him. Now they're giving worship all the time. So it's a little bit humorous in a way. These guys are sitting on their thrones, and um, there's worship that starts, and they immediately throw themselves on the floor. Then at some point, I guess, they get back up again because they start singing again, and they throw themselves back on the floor. And it goes over and over and over and over again. They're in their positions of authority, and constantly they're leaving it to submit to before God. 24 hours fall down before him, sit on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, the eternalness of God. They lay their crowns before the throne so every time they lay down, they also take off their crowns and set their symbols of authority and, that, and submit that before the final authority of God. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, the lyrics of the song. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. David writes many times in his songs how he longs in the morning time early. He wants to start the day, and so we're starting our day with worship. We're starting, the moment we get up, we're recognizing who God is, and we're struck by that. We begin, and I, I could lay a question here. How many of you start your day that way and a suggest if you really want to change your life, begin your morning with praise. Begin your morning with acknowledging God. Okay? Then it goes again, holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty, God has this Mercy, this element of love, but also this mightiness, this awesome holiness that's out here. We've said before, and I'll mention it again here, the the importance of, of taking the completeness who God is. Truth in exclusion to other truth is heresy. So when we emphasize God's love, which He is, it says God is love, but we ignore His holiness then there's something incomplete and we tend to be really squashy on things and, and accept all sorts of things that we shouldn't accept perhaps. If we emphasize his holiness, which we can, it's three times, it's, it's the only character trait of God that is referenced in this triple way. It's the only trait. So you're better off leaning into his holiness than, than his love, if you will, but then we can become very judgmental and very harsh because holiness cannot tolerate sin. And so it's when we embrace both of those together that we are able to sing... Holy, 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 but merciful in the midst of your mightiness. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We're not even going to try to delve into that. we just touched on that once already. Second verse, holy, holy, holy. All the saints adore thee. That's talking about these 24 other elders up here and anyone else who's in heaven. All those who've come to accept God and are pursuing him. All the saints adore thee. They're casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. They're taking off those symbols of authority. This is right from the scripture. Cherubim and seraphim; these are different types of angels. They're falling down before Thee, who was and is, and the original one is who wert and art. I've tried to translate this for you a bit. Okay, who wert and art, and evermore shalt be. We're going to use today who was and is, and evermore shall be, because that's what we see in Revelations chapter four, verse eight, and we also see that in Revelations chapter one, verse eight, where it says, "I'm the Alpha and Omega," says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. Okay? So, who was and is and evermore shall be. cherubim, seraphim, these angels are falling down. Third verse, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. It's not the idea that God's hiding in the shadows, waiting to jump out. It's the idea that his holiness, his completeness his character is so powerful that we could not bear, especially sinful man cannot bear. We would be destroyed in an instant just having that imagery. Moses himself, God says, okay, you want to see me? Because he says, show me your glory. Okay, go up into the rock, go into a cleft in the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and you're gonna, I'm going to let you see just the lesser part of me. Because Moses, you couldn't handle the full truth, okay, to quote a movie, okay? You can't handle the whole thing. But you can handle the back parts and just see a bit of that. And so, it's sinful man. We can't handle the holiness. Holiness hates sin. It has a wrath and anger against sin. And we'll explain why in a moment. And so, we can't handle that. But God sees us. Even though we can't see him fully, we see us. He sees us. The writer says, through a glass I look darkly now. I can see a bit. But when I grow up, in other words, when I get to heaven, I'll see fully. But now I only see partially. So, Though the sinful man may not, the glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee. None. He's perfect. We don't know anyone that's perfect. I know a few people who think they are. But nobody is perfect. But God is. He's perfect in power, in love, in purity. And then the final verse. Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10-11, we're told that at the name of Jesus, at some point in time in history here, everyone is going to realize, every knee will bow, those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. There's going to come a time when everybody, your your harsh neighbor, your atheist friend, your, your your, belligerent son, whatever the case may be, there's going to be a point in time where everyone is going to acknowledge. For some, it will be way too late. We acknowledge it when the conqueror's already come, but it's too late to align. For others, it will be those that have aligned and will have that moment of time. But all thy work shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. And then holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That is... Are the lyrics to the song, and so we're done. Let's just sing the song, and gosh, we can get to Applebee's earlier if we're not going to go out for the food in the patio. Um, but we have a problem here because we're hearing this term, this one character trait that's repeated three times. It's so significant about who God is—His holiness—and we've talked about it being His completeness. We've talked about it being His ultimate health and and the best of the best of the best, but. But here's another problem. Not only do we not fully understand that, we've got to take that a little deeper, but there's implications for us in this, not only in dealing with his holiness, but what he's asking us. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 19, Peter, the one who denied Christ, but later comes back and, and lives his life fully out. But he knows something about failure. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your heart, set your hope rather, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ was revealed to his coming. So there's a hope we have in the grace of God. Even though we're sinful, God's totally holy and can't tolerate sin, we have hope because of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ, his death, his sacrifice, paid the price for us, and, and so we have hope. But it doesn't stop there, because some of us want to stop there and say, well, I'm in grace, so that's cool, God loves me, and I can do whatever I want. Or, or you go over here in your holiness, I can never probably please him. But again, it's pulling these things together here as obedient children verse 14 do not conform to the er, conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance but just as he who called you is holy so be holy in all you do oh. it goes on for it is written be holy because i god says am holy and it's referencing a passage i'll go to in a moment so there's something about this holiness thing that God has that somehow now we're supposed to be part of this. Since you called on a father who judges each person's work impartially, he judges us. No, God doesn't judge anybody. He accepts everybody without any repentance at all. That is not biblical, and it's not Christian, and you're wrong for hearing that or saying that or believing that. His holiness demands change. His holiness cannot tolerate sin. His holiness requires repentance. Then his love is poured out. Since you call in a father who judges each other person's work, judge, we don't judge, God's saying there's a time that's going to happen. Judge these person's work impartially. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I'm an American, but I'm a foreigner in this country. As much as if I'm in Italy or in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else. Does that mean I can't live my life out as an American? No, I can. I'm kind of glad about it. There's some great things about being an American what happens when America no longer lines up with those things of Scripture and Christianity? What do I do at that point in time? Well, if my identity is overwhelmingly American, then I buy into that, and I'll find any reason to uphold that, even against Scripture. But if my identity first is that of a Christian, if my identity first is as a foreigner here, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your nationality, We're all brothers in Christ then. And I'm motivated differently. Live it out in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, as we read the scripture last week, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Uh, The holiness thing. It's written. Where's it written? It's written when the, the Jews have come out of Egypt and God is addressing them. Leviticus chapter 11. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, because, Leviticus 19.2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I the Lord your God am. There's multiple other scriptures that go to the same thing. What's taking place here is that God's sitting here saying, look at Holiness is, is a central trait for me. I am loved too, and don't isolate those things off. But, but holiness is a powerful element. And, and if I'm holy, I'm asking you to be holy too. That means you don't just take your sin and bring it in with you. It means that we have to face our sin. We have to repent of what those things are. We can't say what the world says about it. We can't say what America says about it or whatever country you're part of that is going one way or the other. We have to say what Scripture says about that, not just in judgment towards others. Really, the judgment is to be on ourselves and where we stand. To get an understanding of this and to bring this together a bit, there's one other place where where these phrases are used. It's not just John. In the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, one of the most powerful prophets that you're going to come across, King Uzziah was a major figure, and he just died, which means the country's in turmoil. And so Isaiah's gone up to the temple, one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world at that time. Absolutely stunning, magnificent, awe-inspiring. And he's gone up there to pray. And and it's in this point, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, that he has a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. saw God, high and exalted, seated on a throne. He's looking into heaven. And the train of his robe filled the temple. It, it completely, just, and that, that was a sign of authority. The longer the train, the greater authority you had and power. And so just the train alone just fills the entire temple, which is a huge place. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces, with two, they cover their feet. And with the other two, they're flying. They're calling to one another as they're doing this. They're flying around the throne of God, covering their feet and their eyes, and they're they're, they're flapping their wings. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook this magnificent building, and the temple was filled with smoke. It was an awe-inspiring thing. So, so here's Isaiah. He's just going up to pray in this difficult time of national transition when suddenly God's there. He's got a vision of the throne, and and, and, and he has these incredible, powerful figures that by themselves would have terrified him. But even they are moving in some degree of broken humility as they're covering their eyes and and their feet and and, and saying, holy, they're bowing down to this presence that has suddenly filled the place. And even just a little glimpse of God is blasting the place apart. And and so he's, he's terrified. He's awestruck by the whole thing. This idea of God's holiness, if we really grasp it, absolutely blows us away. It shatters us and breaks us. It makes us so conscious of of no attempt on our part to ever be able to gain God's approval. When we say that God is holy, we're saying he stands apart from us. He's different. He's other than us in terms of intelligence and power, but it also talks about superior character. He's whole in a way that we're not. He's healthy in a way in which we have no normal experience. We're beginning to understand at all in you know, the sickness of what this world is. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says this, quote, God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, and rectitude, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by simply thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. That won't work. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable natural man you, you and I is blind to it we may fear God's power and admire his wisdom but his holiness in the sense of absolute health we cannot even imagine only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the Holy this is why the Jews after Mount Sinai and encountering God they never said his name they would say, they would just use the letters Y-H-W-H. They took the, 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 the consonants out because they were afraid of mispronouncing his name. You know how you're embarrassed? You know, Caroline. No, it's Carolyn. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. But mispronouncing the name of God. We think it's Yahweh. We think it could be Jehovah, but we don't know. They were that caught up with the holiness of God, the impact, the power of who he was. They were also caught up in perceiving his holiness at times as wrath as an anger. Now, we don't like to think of that, God being angry. When we think of it, we think of it like the indiscriminate, uncaring lashing out of an alcoholic parent or a terrorist religion. And, And so we don't like the idea of that imagery of God at all. But this isn't what the Bible means, either about the love or the wrath of God. James Brian Smith says this, "'In the same way that God's love "'is not a silly, sappy feeling, "'but rather a consistent desire "'for the good of his people, "'so also the wrath of the holiness of God "'is not a crazed rage, "'but rather a consistent opposition "'to sin and evil. "'It is a mindful, objective, rational response.' God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely, forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. God is against my sin because he is for me. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath or his holiness as a result, the wrath as a result of his holiness, is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates Yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image bearing creatures. You, me, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies who are human. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful and angry at child abuse, He is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. But God is all those things because he is holy. God longs with such a holy desire for the healing of his creatures, you and me and his creation. As a result, he's going to allow anyone to go to hell that wants to. Because any of those individuals who are not willing to recognize their problem or seek a cure, if they were in heaven, heaven no longer would be heaven. C.S. Lewis says there's, there's a way that God approaches. He either says, uh, we either say to him, thy will be done, or he says to us, thy will be done. So if we don't submit to his will, he submits, if you will, allows our will, which carries us ultimately to hell. In fact, one of the requirements, the only real requirement in many ways for going to heaven is to recognize, as Isaiah does in this passage, that you're not even close to healthy. You and I are not even close to healthy. You are, in fact, an unclean person. And without the touch of God in his holiness, you have no hope and I have no hope. But Peter says, one who already failed once, three times, says, we do have hope in the grace of God. Where's the grace of God come in this holiness and, and, and His love? His holiness is going to consume sin in the end. And that's us as well if we don't repent. But God's holiness also purifies anyone who turns to him. Why do I say that? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6 as we wrap this up. He's awestruck. He's overwhelmed by the holiness. Even these incredible, magnificent creatures, cherubim and seraphim, are are humbled in desperate humbleness before the face of God. What chance is he? And he says in verse 5, Woe to me, Isaiah says, chapter 6. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, I am ruined. That word ruined is like undone. I am molecularly dissipated. I am destroyed. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he's devastated. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he taken with the tongs from the altar. And when it touched my mouth, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Have you come to the place in your relationship with God where you've recognized His holiness, where you recognize your sinfulness, where you have actually repented and, and been like Isaiah, laying yourself down for? And if we do that and accept the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, then there is a cleanliness. There is, we, we are able to now participate. It doesn't mean we're holy, but it means now we begin the process of that. And so now we actually begin to be aligned with God and our actions change. Have you ever seen a diamond that's been pulled off the ground in the rough? They pull this all the time. You'll see a picture. 400 carat diamond just discovered. You know, 300 carat diamond. You see this chunk of of just it's ugly. It looks nothing like a diamond. You and I have probably found many diamonds before and just didn't realize it. You know? I mean because it just looks like a chunk of crystal. And then they take it to Brussels or they take it to Tel Aviv where they, they cut diamonds and, and they, the workman begins to work on it. And that chunk of rock that was maybe 400 carats to start with ends up being 300 carats. You know why? They cut one quarter of it, maybe more sometimes away. They cut the flaws away. They cut the broken part. They cut it and they polish it and they cut it and they polish it and they cut it and they polish it. And then what you have is this incredible glistening thing through which the light shines and reflects, refracts and, and, and it ends up on some woman's ring, okay? It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. We come to Christ in our brokenness and he takes this clump of who we are. And once we've submitted before that, he begins to work on us and this is our lifetime. This is our life. This is why he says, be holy for I'm holy. I'm, I'm chipping away at you. I'm cutting away. So that means there's certain things in my life that shouldn't stay. Even now, having served Christ for as long as I've, there's certain things in my life that still need to be cut away. We're being shaped for heaven. This morning, before we sing the song in our closing moment here, I want to ask you: Have you ever submitted to God? Have you had that moment of time, of release? and if you have, have you continued to allow Him to shape you? So I'm going to ask: Before we go and conclude this service, I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes for a moment. And I'm just going to ask this directly: If you're here this morning. And what you're hearing now is striking in such a fashion that you now understand your condition and the threat that you are in. And I don't say that threateningly. I'm just saying we realize, oh my gosh, God's holy. Everything I've heard about him accepting me without repentance and taking anyone in. No, that's not true. That's not biblically accurate. I've just heard he's holy. Not only holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And this morning... I submit to him. This morning, I take my life and I'm laying it before him. And this morning, I want to acknowledge Christ as my Savior. I want to to say, yes, I am sinful and I repent of that. But I thank you, God, because I'm seeing here and hearing today that you provided a way, a sacrifice, something to pay for my sin, the death of Christ, your Son on the cross, and his resurrection. And this morning, I want to lay hold of that. If that's you this morning with no one looking around, raise your hand quickly. I just want to pray with you. This is just part of our service. Okay? Anyone else? I see that. Half dozen hands. Eight and ten hands. Anybody else? Okay, I'm seeing the balcony. Yep, okay. All right. I see it. All right, one last time. Anybody else want to join in on this? Last thing I'll say then is this. There are those of us here who we have been saved our whole lives, but today you're getting hit with the fact that you were required and asked, to, be commanded by God to be holy. That it's not just about where you're at, and that doesn't mean we get filled with guilt and fear and terror, but no, you're being called to something more. This morning, you're conscious of the fact that you've been kind of taking God's grace for granted and you realize today He's calling you out. He's calling you out to begin to live your life maybe a little differently. There's a a little chip that needs to be taken off of your diamond. If that's you this morning and you want to submit that before God, just lift a hand quickly before Him, wherever you're at, yeah, a lot of us. So Father, this morning, these dozen or so that, are responding to your holiness, but also to your love today, to your wholeness and completeness. And they're recognizing their lives, and this morning they submit to you, and they say, God, forgive me. I've lived in ignorance way too long. I've lived in pride and arrogance way too long. I've lived in guilt and shame way too long. And this morning, I'm laying all that down before you, and I want to be made new. I repent, and I embrace the... The sacrifice of your son Christ, both in his death and resurrection. And I pray your forgiveness this morning. As we pray that, Lord, I pray each individual who prays that this morning would be instantly and immediately healed and restored spiritually before you, maybe even physically. For others of us, Lord, that today bring our take it for grantedness, our assumptions, our own pride that's crept even though we've been followers of you lord our own pride has crept in that we don't think anything needs to be worked on and we are so wrong and that doesn't need to result in guilt or condemnation but in a in a delight that there's more you're calling us to lord as we lay those things before you bring us forth into your light lord restore shape renew us i pray god And as we prepare to sing this song, Lord, I pray as we sing of your holiness that we sing of it in a different way today than we ever had before. With an awareness, a consciousness, a joy, and an awe, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this song emphasizes three times instead of exclamation points. It's the only um, trait of God that is highlighted in this way. Um, It's a unique song in that it encourages the singer to join in. It doesn't just initiate praise. It it invites us to join early in the morning. It's also a really significant song in the sense that this hymn spans the Old and the New Testament. And um, in this way, I'm saying, Isaiah, this is drawn from, received his vision in the 8th century B.C. John the Apostle recorded his revelation in the 1st century A.D. Reginald Heber, who composed this hymn, did it in 1826 in the 19th century, and congregations today, including our own, are still singing this in the 21st. It spans a significant period of time. But here's one of the real interesting things about this song, folks, and something you're going to get to do that the author didn't, because the author never sang this song. Heber was a poet. He wrote these words as poetry, and yes, he meant it as a hymn, but at that time, the Church of England didn't encourage him singing. In fact, they spoke against it. He was a little bit too wild and crazy. And he could never convince them otherwise. After he died, his wife took this and other poems and published them, and they became very popular. But it wasn't until 1861, decades after his death, that a publisher got a hold of another guy named John Dykes, who was another English pastor and songwriter, musician, and asked if he would furnish a tune for this poem. And so he wrote a tune in 30 minutes. The text and the tune together were published for the first time in 1861. The tune is named after the Council of Nicaea, the fourth century council at which the Trinity was upheld as the central doctrine of the church. The tune's name is Nicaea. The song is holy, holy, holy. And this morning, you get to sing it even though the author never did. Stand with us. had a friend email me after uh, I mentioned last week or so, I mentioned how we, we've tried in this church. We're a non-denominational church, but that doesn't mean we're an independent church. All churches that are following Christ should have some degree of connection. Um, and so we said the other week that, you know, Presbyterians had great teaching, but the worship was kind of dry. And years, centuries passed, but the worship was kind of dry. And Pentecostals have had great worship all the time, times, but their theology has been a little shallow at times. And so we said that we've tried to be Presbycostal, okay, as best we can. So I had a friend email me recently, and they gave me a list of 10 things they were being asked to, to mark themselves, where they're at, and it was Protestant, Catholic, all this stuff. And they said, Presbycostal's not listed. <laughs> so you can put Protestant, non-denominational, you're going to up with that. But here's the thing, we want to have worship, and we want to take the hymns and the songs, whether they're current or ancient, and have them be part of who we are. But we also want to be rooted in the depths of of the church as well. So this morning, I'm going to ask if they'd put the Lord's Prayer back up there again. You never know, you might be on Jeopardy one day. And I'm going to ask that we'd read this together. And for those of you that are the debtor types, if you could just indulge us, go with us on trespasses, or you can whisper the debtors one if you want, but we're going to use the trespasses. But let's read this as our closing um, prayer today, okay? So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that as we go into this week, we would process what it means to serve a holy God, the beauty of that, the utter completeness of who you are, let us, let us approach you with joy, knowing that we are received. Let us continue to let your Holy Spirit shape us, even as it did Peter, taking him from someone who denied you three times to being the rock upon which most of the church was built upon. So, Lord, we commit these things into your hands, in Jesus' name. And, Lord, your blessing upon our time for those that are staying to eat and enjoy the picnic. Um, blessing as well, in Jesus' name. Amen. With those available up front here to pray, Feel free to join us for lunch if you want to.